good morning, everyone. It's good to see you on this uh, very sunny and uh, fall-like day. As we, uh, before uh, we hear the word preached, we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer and specifically uh, pray for one of our members, uh, John Fung, who along with his family and other members of uh, the, the church that John's family attends in California, they are in Israel at the present time. I believe they're in Tel Aviv. And if you have been paying attention to the news, you know that there are, uh, there's a conflict raging there. And so we want to pray for uh, the protect, God's protection upon John and his family and, and uh, the, the church group that's there, and indeed as well for, for all who are involved and are affected by, by war. Uh, it's a terrible thing, and we want to uh, be mindful of God's presence and protection. And uh, as we go to prayer, um, particularly in light of the fact that we're praying for a group of people who are in Israel, uh, I'm reminded of uh, these verses from Psalm 121, where it's a song of ascent, uh, a, a psalm that was sung and recited by pilgrims who, oddly enough, uh, were going to Jerusalem to worship and to uh, participate in the festivals there. And so when you think about a, a church group going to Israel, uh, this psalm comes to mind. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who sleep, who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So that's not only a good psalm to pray for protection upon John and his family, but as well for us as we seek God's covering and protection. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are um, this God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, whose uh, glory and power and majesty are exercised not only to display your glory and your power, but also on display for our protection and for our good. And we pray, Lord, with that in mind, for, for John and his family and the members of the church who are there in Israel, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would keep them safe and protect them from harm. We pray as well, Lord, for an end to this conflict. There is um, every reason to believe it's a serious thing. Uh, Lord, lives have been lost. There is conflict. There is war. There is death. Uh, the Lord has said that there would be wars and rumors of wars until Jesus returns. And while we accept this as a truth, we also see the horror and the devastation that is caused by what happens when men decide to kill one another for any reason whatsoever. And so we ask, O oh Lord God, that you who are sovereign would extend your sovereign hand of protection upon John and his family and the members of the church there. We would pray the same for us, Lord God, here, that we may not face that serious a conflict, but there are battles that we face internally, O oh Lord God. There are doubts, there are anxieties, there are fears, there are afflictions of body and mind that confront us, and we tremble, O oh Lord God, because of our weakness, and we are tempted to yield to our fear rather than to go to you and sacrifice those fears by way of prayer and petition for your relief. We pray, Lord God, for our nation as we, we see uh, turmoil uh, in our streets, in our own city, Lord God. Uh, people are afraid to travel the subway. We saw on the news a, a man stabbed uh, simply for just being outside. Uh, we look at these things, Lord God, and we, we wonder... Where are you in the midst of this? And your word assures us that you are present even in these things and that we can seek you and call upon your name to help us make sense of the senseless. And so we pray, Lord God, with a, a faith that is a gift from you, that you would continue to encourage us to be light and salt in our community, to help us combat and confront evil in the name of Christ wherever we see it, we thank you that the power to do this comes not from ourselves, but it comes from your Holy Spirit uh, through your word. 
and through, O oh Father, the, the majesty and the glory of our risen Savior. Lord, we turn our attention now to your word, to this word specifically from Second Peter. Uh, help us to be mindful, Lord, of the reality, not only of Christ's first advent, but the promise, the sure and certain promise that he is coming again, that our faith, O oh Lord God, is not in vain, that it is not based on a myth or a fairy tale, but it is based upon the living word who died and rose again, ascended into heaven, is seated now at the right hand of the majesty on high, and from there will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we pray, Lord God, as members of your church, that you would empower us by your spirit to hold on to this hope and then also to freely share it by our words and our actions. Uh, speak to us now from your word, Lord God, we ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at, at a point in uh, uh, Peter's second letter where he has um, begun, to, he has moved from this exhortation to supplement our faith with, with the various qualities that are evidence and fruit of the presence and reality of Christ in our lives to uh, now Peter really getting into the, the reason why he has written those things and why he has written this second letter, which is to address uh, certain false teaching and certain false teachers that have arisen. And we'll, we'll see what those uh, false teachers are saying in just a moment. As we look at this text from Second Peter, uh, a question that comes to mind by way of sort of introducing what's going on here is if you were, if you were asked to make a list of people whom you trust, who would be on that list? And then as a follow-up question, why do you trust them? And I ask that question because trust, particularly trust in others, is really at the heart of Second Peter. Why do we trust what Peter says here as being true and good and purposeful? Why do we believe what he says to be something on which we should base our lives? And very clearly, from the way Peter starts his letter, we should believe him because he is a servant, a slave, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust him because his lifestyle uh, revealed his commitment to practice what Jesus preaches. We trust him because his message can be measured and verified against the message not only of what Jesus said, but what the other apostles have said, especially the apostle Paul, whom Peter will refer to at the end of his letter. We trust what Peter says because he is a very human person. We have this idea, an image of the apostles as these paragons of virtue, these folks who never stumbled, never fell. But if you know anything about the life of Peter, if you read the Gospels, you know that while Peter did some uh, amazing things, he was also the one who, you know, when Jesus bids him to come out and, of the boat and to walk on the water, it's, it's Peter who doubts and begins to sink and has to cry out for the Lord to save him. It's Peter who boldly says that he is willing to die for Jesus even though others may fall away, and we know that Peter denies Jesus three times and is eventually restored. And we, at the same time, we see the boldness of Peter, as we read in our text from Acts 4, that under the power and influence of the Spirit, he rises to the occasion. So we believe Peter because he is a man, human, though empowered by the Spirit to do good things and great things for the gospel. Nevertheless, having said all of that, there were those in Peter's day, particularly now among the, the churches that he's writing to, who cast aspersions and questioned Peter's authority and his character. That, in essence, Peter could not be trusted to be telling his readers the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And in particular, the fact that Jesus would be coming back, that there was a return of Christ that is promised. So Peter reminds his readers uh, in a section that I didn't, we didn't read, which is 12 to 15, that we need to believe and to trust in him. We have every reason to trust the gospel that G, uh, Peter preaches. We have every reason to trust the gospel because God gave us everything we need to believe it. So just in the same way that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, therefore we supplement our faith with particular qualities, 
by virtue of these things, God has given us everything we need to believe the gospel to be true. And that's really going to be uh, the big idea of, the, of this passage, 16 to 21 of 2 Peter 1, that we have every reason to trust the gospel because God has given us everything we need to believe it. And it, So we'll unpack the verses as follows. We'll look at the fact that we can trust the gospel because, first of all, it's based on eyewitness testimony. And then we can trust the gospel because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we can trust the gospel because it's based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And then we can trust it because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that first, that first section. This is verses 16 to 18. Just by way of reminder, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now by the we in that statement, Peter's referring to himself and the other apostles. And he's telling them from the start, the, the gospel what we're telling you about what we have seen and heard is not a cleverly devised myth. Peter is writing to a group of believers. Some were Jews, some were Gentiles, perhaps Greeks who had come to believe in Christ, and they had been steeped in the mythology of, of Greek mythology, and they would have heard the stories of the gods who came down to earth and would appear in human form. And Peter says, the gospel is not anything like that. We believe in a God who became human, yes. But the God in whom we believe who became human did something that no other God from any other mythology would ever deign to do, and that is to die for the creation that is made in his image and his likeness. No religion would preach such a foolish, unbelievably stupefying thing except the gospel. Because it's by becoming like us and by dying for our sins, Jesus is able to make reconciliation between us and God. So the, the gospel says, Peter, the things we're telling you about the, the power and coming of Christ, it's not some cleverly devised myth. It's not a, a fable. It's, it's not a, a fairy tale that it's, that's been fabricated, as has been said. It's not a story that has been fabricated by a group of well, in the words of the modern contemporary scene, the gospel is not something that was made up by a group of cisgender white males intended to subjugate women and to maintain the supremacy of their race. But the gospel was, was handed down from men by God himself in Jesus Christ in order to proclaim liberty to captives, salvation for those who were alienated from God by their sin. So the gospel is rather the faithful communication about everything Jesus said and about everything Jesus did. But let's say for a moment, let's just for the sake of argument, let's take Peter and say, what if Peter did follow some cleverly devised myth? Why would they do such a thing? Why would they make up such a story to foist upon the world? Why do people, in a sense, create followings? Maybe Peter did it for the money. Well, he had no money. If you read that account in Acts 4, go back to the start of the chapter, the whole thing starts with a, a, a poor beggar who is crippled from birth, and he asks Peter and John and James for some money, for some alms. And Peter looks at him and he, he it's like he just sort of pulls out his pockets and says, look, silver and gold, I don't have anything like that. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter didn't have money. He didn't do it for the money. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's, a, there's an incident in the gospel where Jesus turns away a rich young man who says, you know, I have kept all of the commandments from birth. And Jesus said, well, you know, that's great. Good for you. But, you know, you really lack just one thing. Why don't you just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. 
And the, and the rich young fellow says, I'll get back to you on that. And, and then Jesus says, you know, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter and the other apostles, who then who can be saved? Who can be saved then? If not this wealthy guy who apparently has been blessed because he's done everything right. And then Peter says, we've left everything for you. So it wasn't money that motivated, that would have motivated Peter to do this. How about fame? How about respect? How about clicks? How about likes? How about being an influencer? Peter was a wanted man. Following Jesus made him an outcast from his own community. He was cut off from the synagogues. It's the religious leaders of the day who stand and accuse Peter and James and John of heresy, telling them, we told you, stop preaching in the name of this dead man, Jesus. Peter says, whether it's right in your eyes to obey God or man, you decide. Well, we can't help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. And Peter goes on to talk about that. The religious leaders and his own community mocked Peter. They beat him. They put him in prison. So fame, power. He would amass a following. If that were true, then Peter, the first thing Peter would have done was to seek an alliance with the supreme authority of the day, which would have been the Roman Empire. And yet in Acts 10, when we read that Peter goes to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and when Cornelius sees him, he falls down on his knees and begins to worship Peter. The first thing Peter says is, stand up. I'm a man just like you. Money? Fame? Power? Nope. None of those things. Peter had no interest in promoting a cleverly devised myth about Jesus. He had every interest and every desire in preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. As Paul would say, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He had no interest in collecting followers to feed his ego. He had every interest in gathering people who would worship Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Nor did any of the apostles share that same delusion of grandeur, especially the Apostle Paul. Have you read concerning Paul? Have you read 2 Corinthians 11? Have you read Philippians 3 where Paul says, these are all my accolades. Here are all my diplomas. Here are all the letters after my name. Here's my CV. Here's my list of accomplishments. You know what you can do with them? You can burn them because they don't mean anything to me. I give them all up for the sake of knowing one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Peter would say the same thing. So there was no interest in money. There was no interest in fame. There was no interest in power. There was every interest in proclaiming the glory, the majesty, the power, and the saving work of Jesus Christ. The apostles, Peter among them, had one mission, one goal, one aim, one purpose. Go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything, teaching them to observe everything Jesus had commanded them. And to do that, Peter and their other apostles had pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor for the life the wealth of glory, and the sacred honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, if the gospel was some cleverly devised myth, don't you think that at some point, having been threatened with prison, having been threatened with death, one of the apostles would have broken character and say, you got us, it's all made up. Even Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, once he realizes the mistake that he made in betraying Jesus, doesn't say, well, it's all a myth, that's why I did it. He said, I have betrayed innocent blood. So no, this is no fairy tale that we believe in. This is no myth. This is no fable. This is no legend. This is truth. And it's truth, says Peter, that's worth living for, truth that's worth dying for, because it's truth that gives life. 
And it's truth that gives meaning. And it's truth that gives clarity to everything we say, everything we do, everything we live. The particular myth, if you will, that Peter was accused of promoting was that Christ would return in glory at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. This was the thing that the false teachers were picking on. This accusation from this group of false teachers, whoever they were, whatever they were saying, the one thing they keyed in on is that they scoffed at the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back. According to the gospel that they preached, sure, Christ came, may have even been God in the flesh. Well, we'll, we'll give you that, Peter. Maybe he died for our sins. Maybe he uh, brought us salvation by grace through faith. But that's about it. This whole thing about him coming back, not going to happen. The world is just going to go on the way that it's always gone on. Right? To quote that wonderful theologian, Taylor Swift, haters going to hate. <laughs> Nothing you can do about it. So just shake it off. That's the only Taylor Swift song I know. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> that and the fact that she's dating some football player. And according to the Babylon Bee, maybe traded to the Jets. <laughs> so these false teachers, that's it. No second coming, no returning glory, and most definitely, no future judgment of the wicked, no future reward for the faithful followers of Christ. Peter knew better. He saw. Not only did he see Jesus while Jesus was alive, he saw Jesus after his resurrection, he also saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And what is one of the, for me, one of the more humorous aspects of the, the New Testament? Peter is there with the rest of the apostles when Jesus ascends into heaven. So the, the, you know, the scene that Luke depicts for us there in Acts 1 is they're all standing and Jesus tells them they're going to be witnesses in, in uh, Jerusalem and so forth, and the Spirit comes upon them, and then suddenly clouds surround Jesus, and he begins to ascend into the air, and the apostles just watch him go, and, and their mouths open. And while they're just watching, two angels appear, and the angels sort of get their attention. Like, fellas, men of Israel, why are you looking up? This Jesus who was taken up from you, he says, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Peter, whose own eyes and ears saw and heard Jesus resurrected, ascended, and that fact then confirmed by this angelic witness, there is no half gospel. You can't believe in a Jesus who comes in the, a God who comes in the form of human man, dies for our sin, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, but is not coming back. You, you can't do that, says Peter. That's half a gospel. You can't have a God who says and does the things that Jesus said and did without believing everything he said. So either Jesus was telling the truth when he said, I go and prepare a place for you so that when I come back, you may be where I am, or you don't. And if you don't, then you don't have a Jesus that the gospel talks about. You have some Jesus that you have concocted. You have a cleverly devised story about Jesus rather than the gospel truth about Jesus. But in addition to being an eyewitness to the ascension of Jesus... Peter saw something else that confirmed and gave him this strength of conviction that Jesus was coming back. And that was the transfiguration of Jesus. Because when he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, he's referring to the time when Jesus takes Peter and James and John up to a high mountain where in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, the Gospel writer tells us Jesus was transfigured before them his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In Luke's account of the transfiguration, the appearance of Jesus' face changes. His clothes became as brilliant as lightning, says Luke. So Peter saw this majesty. But that wasn't the only time Peter saw the majesty of Jesus or experienced it. Let me give you a list. Peter experienced the majesty of Jesus every time Jesus healed the leper. Every time he gave sight to the blind. Every time he gave hearing to the deaf. He made a lame person walk. He experienced the majesty of Jesus every time Jesus cast demons out of the demonized. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead. When he raised the son of the widow of Nain. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when he saw Jesus walk on water. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when Jesus rescued him from drowning after he was walking on the water. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee, when he fed 5,000 and then 4,000, when he saw the resurrected Jesus. When on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me, and restored him to ministry. He experienced the majesty of Jesus at the ascension. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when he stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the 3,000 were saved. He experienced the majesty of Jesus when he healed that lame beggar in Acts 4. And he experienced the majesty of Jesus when he saw the Holy Spirit come upon the entire household of the centurion Cornelius when he preached the gospel there. So it's customary at this point to ask a preacher's question. Have you experienced Jesus like this? And the answer to that question is likely no. More importantly, my question is totally unfair. Because no one can experience Jesus like this except Peter. Because his experience is unique, as is the experience of the apostles. They were apostles, after all. They would be entrusted with a message and they had to have confirmation that the message that they were proclaiming was true. And that the person whom they were declaring and proclaiming this message was about was also the very person who was truth embodied. Peter's experience is unique. Their faith in Jesus, you understand, was not based on their experience. Their experience, if anything, confirmed their faith. This is the heart of the gospel testimony. We, I think it was the first year I was here, we spent a lot of time in 1 John. John begins his letter like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there's a balance between faith and experience. Paul would say we live by faith and not by sight. Why is that? Because our faith in Christ is based on the word, not based on our experience. Let me be bold and say, if the gospel is not enough for you to believe in Jesus, then the gospel is not enough for you to believe in Jesus. If you are seeking an experience, you're seeking the wrong thing. It's not wrong to have an experience. It's not wrong to have some emotion, some, as Wesley said, moment where your heart is strangely warmed by the gospel. But if your entire faith is based on an experience, then like an addict, you're going to want more and more intense experiences to validate your faith rather than relying upon the rock-solid truth of the word. If you're living by experience which, as a basis for your faith, you're always going to be looking for the next big thing, the next teaching, the next song, the next word that can somehow make things tingle within you, other than the fact 
that it's the gospel alone that brings you that sense of assurance that God uses through your experience to confirm what is true. If you're seeking an experience, be aware that the enemy knows that. And little by little, he will use your experience to draw you step by step away from reliance upon the word and to your own sense of what is right or wrong. I speak from experience. As a young Christian, I can tell you my faith was experience-based. I did and did not do things based on how I felt the Spirit leading me. That is a dangerous way to live. It is a dangerous way to, to, to practice the gospel. Because on good days, everything is fine. But on bad days, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. I must have done something wrong. And you're examining your life based on how you feel. You don't realize how self-centered that is. As opposed to saying, what does the word say about my emotions? My emotions can't be trusted because my heart, though it may be renewed, there's still enough of the old heart left that leads me to think I need to trust in my emotions more than what God says is true. Balance, balance, balance. Yes, Worship with passion. Read the gospel and let it impact you. But don't live by experience. Live by faith in the Son of God who died for you and gave himself for you. And remember, too, the words of Jesus. There at the end of John's gospel, when all the the apostles are raving about the fact that Jesus is risen, there's Thomas who missed out on the whole thing. And Thomas says, unless I see him, Unless I put my finger in the wound in his side and and the nail prints in his hands, I won't believe. And then a few days later, Jesus appears and says, Hey, Thomas, I heard you're having a little trouble here. Go ahead. Put your hand in my side. Put your hand in in the nail prints in my hands. And Thomas doesn't do any of that. He simply falls at Jesus' feet and worships him, says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, now you believe because you see? (laughs) Let me tell you, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's us, folks. We believe on the basis of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. The fact that they they had these experiences only confirmed the faith that Christ had given to them as a gift. We may not be eyewitnesses in the same way that Peter and the apostles were, but when you think about it, everything we believe about Jesus is based on eyewitness testimony. It's the same argument Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 about the validity of the resurrection, that Christ died and rose again according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and the apostles, and then he says to 500 of the brethren, many of whom are still alive, meaning these 500, you can track them down, you can go ask them, was Jesus really... Alive after he died? Oh yeah, we saw him. Then they can tell you. So everything we believe about the gospel is based on eyewitness testimony, including the fact that Jesus made a promise to come back. Now why is that important? I've been building up, I've been laying out this fact that Peter had these marvelous experiences, that the gospel is trustworthy. Why? Why is it so important to believe that Jesus is coming back? Well, if he's not coming back, then there's no justice in this world. There are no consequences for our behavior, good or bad. If Jesus doesn't come back, there's no punishment of evil. There's no reward for faithfulness. If he's not coming back, why bother practicing what he preaches? As Paul would quote from one of the philosophers of the day, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus isn't coming back, we have no hope of seeing again loved ones who have died trusting in him. Nor do we have any hope of spending an eternity in a new heaven and new earth, which he has promised would come at his return. If Jesus is not coming back, why bother preaching the gospel? Because it doesn't matter if you're saved or you're not. If he's not coming back, if things just go on the way they are without any end goal in sight, ultimately life has no purpose, it has no meaning, it has no goal. But Jesus is coming back, says Peter. 
Peter was there on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He heard Jesus say in John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. That's a clear promise. I'm going away and I'm coming back. In my absence, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit, who will confirm in your heart and mind and experience everything I have said about myself to be true. You can't have a custom-made Jesus. You can't have a Jesus that fits your image of what he should be like, who says only these things but is never coming back to judge your behavior, which is why Peter is so adamant at the start to say, if you have believed, then make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, brotherly affection, love, godliness. Because these things matter, and they should be evidence of those who have put their hope in a living Savior who makes a guaranteed promise. It matters that we make every effort to make our calling and election sure. It matters that Jesus is coming back. Peter doesn't talk about timing. He doesn't talk about circumstances. He talks only about the certainty that what Jesus said he would do, he would do. He will judge the wicked, and he will reward the faithful. In addition to seeing Jesus transfigured, Peter has this additional testimony that he hears his voice. So there's a, there is this experience. He sees the cloud, there's the noise of the moment, and he hears his voice. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And in that moment, Peter joins some very elite company. He experienced what Moses did in Exodus 33. He experienced what Elijah did in 1 Kings 19. The same goes for his shared experience with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where the temple trembles with the presence of God. The same goes for Ezekiel. Read Ezekiel 1. Blows your mind in terms of the glory throne of God descending upon earth. Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the Apostle Paul, and last but not least, the Apostle John. Remember that scene, the opening scene in Revelation? John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Then it gets more intense. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus who's coming back. This is the Jesus who appears in human flesh, but is now peeled back so that we can see and behold his glory. So that when Peter goes out, and you go out to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is. You're not talking merely about some carpenter from Nazareth who claimed to be the Son of God. You're talking about a being who clothed himself in human flesh and then at the transfiguration peeled that back to display the brilliance. And the amazing thing about that is Peter didn't die. Nor did James. Nor did Peter. Because when Moses saw the glory of God, God had to put him in the cleft of a rock and cover him with a hand. And then when Moses came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face, lest the glory that was radiating from his face would kill everyone who saw him. So Peter says, this nonsense about Jesus not coming back, stop it. Because it takes away and draws away from the glory and the majesty of the one who came in power and who's coming again. Have confidence in that. Have confidence in him. So seeing the glory of Christ in hum in, in displayed through Christ, Peter then gives, this is the reason why we make every effort, because we want to see that glory. I don't know about you, but I do. I want to fall at his feet like a dead man. And have him reach his hand out and say, stand up 
and live. Because he's done that now, has he not? If we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we heard the gospel of salvation, it didn't die the moment we heard that truth, that our sin had made a separation between us and God, and God didn't kill us at that moment, but said, I have killed my son for your sake. Then we realize, that's a love that I can't understand and I can't comprehend, but oh, I want to dive deep into it. And I want to experience it. And the only way I get to experience it fully without any interference between God and me is when the glorious appearance of Christ returns and I see him, as John says, we become like him because we will see him as he is. To behold the glory of Christ, unashamed, uninterrupted by our own sin. Have you confessed faith in a Jesus like that? If you have not, I plead with you. Make that your confession. Because on the day when he appears in glory, for those who have made that confession, oh, what a day that will be. Faith will become sight. Joy will replace fear and sorrow and mourning. But for those who don't, there is a fearful and terrible retribution. And it's not as if when those who don't believe in Jesus see him will suddenly be filled with regret. Like, oh my goodness, I should have. It's like, no. Their hatred and, dis and, de and despising of him will only be intensified because his holiness draws out from those who worship him a greater degree of worship. At the same time, it draws out from those who revile him a greater sense of revision. Peter says, don't be among that number. Be among those who long for the appearing of Christ who long for his returning. Everything we believe about Jesus is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. It sounds like foolishness until that moment the Holy Spirit opens our heart and we see and behold the glory of Christ. When we hear in the testimony of someone who knows Jesus, that's when we see the majestic glory. We understand that our testimony is not the gospel per se, but that the Holy Spirit uses our words about Christ to show us the Savior who is the very embodiment of the gospel. We can trust the gospel because it is based on a testimony of eyewitnesses, but eyewitnesses are not the only way we learn the truth about Jesus. And this is the wrapping up of the paragraph. We can trust the gospel because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter builds his argument. He builds from the human to the divine. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well, he says, to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and a morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives a test as to know how you can tell the truthfulness of a prophet. If a prophet says something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, that's not a prophet. But if a prophet tells you what's going to happen and it happens, that's a prophet. Jesus said, kill me. Three days later, I'll rise from the dead. He did. They did. He did. That's a prophet. The truthfulness of what Jesus said was proved by his resurrection, proved by his ascension, and will be proved again by his return. All the commentaries I've read about these verses say they are very challenging to interpret. What exactly is Peter getting at here? After sifting through all the options, which I won't, run through for you. Here is what I think Peter is getting at. That when he says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, he's referring to everything the prophets said about Jesus in the Old Testament. Which I think, curiously enough, is why Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is a prophet, but he also represents the law. Elijah is a prophet. 
And so you have the law and the prophets pointing to the very embodiment of both, the very fulfillment of both. So that everything Moses, Elijah, and all the prophets said about Jesus is now proven to be true. That Jesus is the long-promised, the long-awaited, the long-hoped-for Messiah. The Son of Man, the Servant of the Lord, the Savior, whose coming was predicted from of old. And they are the reason why the writer of the Hebrews borrows the same language that Peter uses at the beginning of his of his letter when he refers to Jesus ascending to heaven, seated at the right hand of the majestic glory. It's why Paul could say that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the testimony. This word is not devised from man's own interpretation, but it comes directly under the influence and inspiration of the Spirit. Again, so what? Why is that so important to hang on to and to believe? The answer is because without the written, the proven testimony of the prophets, without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can't trust a single thing they say. Without the inspiration of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit, and how that happens is never really laid out in Scripture. We just accept it as true. These, clever, these, these truths about the gospel, if, if it's not inspired by the Spirit, all we have then are human myths that ultimately prove useless in helping us supplement our faith, make our calling and election sure, and ultimately prove futile in helping us navigate through life. It's because the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's because the word is inspired by the Holy Spirit that the prophets, what they said, is made sure that we have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It's because the word is inspired by the Spirit that Jesus gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It's because the word is inspired by the Spirit that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is because the scriptures are inspired by the Spirit that we pay attention to the word of God as though it were a light shining in a dark place because for as beautiful and as lovely as this world is, it is an incredibly dark place. And we need a light to show us the way through it. Probably everyone who is raised in Sunday school or been to Sunday school has at one time memorized what is likely the most famous passage outside of John 3.16 in the entire Bible. Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what Peter's talking about. We don't get the full picture from the gospel. We see the end of it, that Jesus is coming back. But we have just enough light for the place where we are. Because sometimes all you can see is the three or four feet that are in front of you. We want to see more, but we can't. That's where faith comes in. We think we're headed toward a cliff. Faith says, no, there's a path there. There's a bridge there. There's a way through this. When all, but at the moment, all we see is the three feet in front of us. And we forget that if God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, that three feet is all we need to see. Because he's going to be with us in the fog. He's going to be with us at the end. He's going to be with us in the middle. We have to trust that every step we take forward is a step toward another three feet of solid ground. Cleverly devised myths. When, when uh, Jill and I watch these, uh, a lot, these hikers on, on YouTube videos, and we watch these uh, guys that have gone winter camping, and uh, they, when, they, when you go winter camping, obviously the trail is not clearly marked, and if you, if you go off trail, you start to bushwhack, they say you have to be very careful what they call spruce traps, which are you know, spruce trees that grow up at, at higher altitudes. 
and you can you can step into one of these traps and suddenly you 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 just sink like up to your hip in snow cleverly devised myths don't tell you where the spruce traps are in life they'll just keep leading you off trail they'll help you bushwhack that's a shortcut i'm going to get to where i want to go if i followed it no you're going to be led into a spruce trap you're going to be led off a cliff stay on trail stay where it's clearly marked that's what the gospel does it's it is that light that helps and guides you uh, when i when i was a kid uh, i was i was afraid of the dark which explains i think my fascination with flashlights jill can tell you i have an amazing collection of flashlights and i have to restrain myself when i go to the home depot checkout line because they put all these flashlights out there to tempt me And, and these flashlights are, are, are sort of placed all over the house. Like, why, are we, why do you have a flashlight in your sock drawer? The dark. I don't like the dark. You shouldn't like the dark. Because Christ has given you a light to see through it. But the good news is there will come a day when you won't need a flashlight because the morning star will rise. And when the morning star rises, you know what that means? That means dawn is not far behind. We're not looking for the star. We're looking for the one who made it. And when he comes, when he comes, we won't need anyone to tell us the truth because we'll see it. And we'll know it. And we'll experience it to the full. So you make every effort. You make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with knowledge, with self-control, with godliness, with brotherly affection, and with love. You make every effort to make your calling and election sure so that when that day dawns, you will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are, are <laughs> help us, Lord, by reading your word, experience your glory. And then help us, Father, translate that glory with the help of your spirit into words that proclaim that wonderful truth to others, that they also, Lord, would behold your glory and enter into your kingdom. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.